the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. Right now in America, we're having a uh, uh, a discussion of principles, or we should be having a discussion of principles, but it, sometimes it just turns into uh, a discussion of teams. The principles that set America up as the great changing force of the world was was freedom and the freedom to exchange with people. And it started with really, can we just can we be free to exchange between each other with the states at the very beginning? The Articles of Confederation, the reason why it was too weak is everybody had their own money. Uh, uh, people were charging different taxes and tariffs across the state borders. And we knew if we were going to be the United States, that wasn't going to work. We needed something. We needed to be able to trade with each other and just have and, and everybody will be on an equal footing. That's really one of the biggest problems of the Articles of Confederation and why we adopted the the Constitution of the United States. Trade. Free trade is in the marrow of our bones. But right now we're having a discussion that maybe we shouldn't have free trade. Maybe because of uh, national interest or national security, we should have tariffs here, there or elsewhere. And it's easy to win a trade war. Well, what is the principle behind free trade? Why is this important as a conservative principle, here to talk to us about that is Scott Lincecum. He's uh, he's a uh, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and an expert on free trade. Uh, Scott, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me. Good to be back, Scott. Tell me in a nutshell. So let's start at the let's start at macro. Why is this a fundamental conservative principle? Sure. Um, so I, I think there are a, a few reasons, really, but but most basically, and and you brought it up with respect to trade among the states. Um, you know, free trade really, at its most basic, is simply the absence of government in uh, voluntary mutual be- mutually beneficial transactions that just so happen to go across borders. Um, you know, just as conservatives recoil at the thought of putting a bureaucrat between themselves and their doctors, uh, you know, you'd think they'd be similarly opposed to p- uh, putting a bureaucrat between themselves and, and their merchants, for example. Um, now, beyond that simple principle, when you then look at what protectionism, protectionism is on the, uh, on the other end of free trade, uh, you see that protectionism is a, a hidden regressive tax on consumers who are forced by government to subsidize uh, certain well-connected producers. And, you know, the only difference between a tariff and a subsidy is that the tariff money comes right out of our own pockets instead of coming out of the Treasury. And this is kind of a classic bottom-up redistribution um, and of one that actually hurts poor Americans more than richer Americans because poor Americans have, you know, of course, smaller budgets to stretch in the first place. Is, the, um, is, there, any dif- is there any difference between... Um, Illinois saying to Alabama, because Alabama got a new BMW plant and all the workers are going to go down there. And Illinois saying, you know what, Uh, you brought them in at an unfair advantage because you brought them in with tax uh, incentives. And so anything that comes from Alabama, if you buy that BMW in Illinois, we're going to charge you a little bit more. Right. Right. No, uh, you know, there, there's not uh, any sort of 
fundamental difference between uh, the border between two states and the border between two countries. Um, you know, you, you, can, you can try to think of kind of nationalistic ideas, but the fact is in terms of kind of the economics and the principles of it, uh, you're really dealing with, with the same thing. And, and you know, so, really uh, important. So aren't we doing that then by saying, I'm going to give Boeing a tax incentive by coming to this state? Isn't that in a way... Uh, a subsidy. Why does it work with the states and it doesn't work with foreign countries? Uh, well, I mean, I think one of the reasons is that um, we kind of recognize the value of the system uh, of, of the free exchange of goods across borders when it comes to the states. And we, we don't think that while we might not be thrilled with with certain companies in certain states getting these subsidies, we understand that, first of all, their taxpayers are, in a way, subsidizing our consumption. Yeah. But second, that the, the, the system itself is so valuable that it's not worth uh, destroying it just because we might not like what happens uh, every once in a while, that, that there is kind of this, this greater uh, importance to keeping the system alive. Now, when you, when you change that to international uh, boundaries, for some reason, that, that whole calculus goes out the window. And all of a sudden, um, you know, foreign governments subsidizing our consumption is a big problem. Um, and uh, we, we are far more willing to accept uh, government interference in our, our transactions um, because of these vague kind of allegations of unfairness or whatever. Now, never mind that a lot of these allegations of unfairness are made uh, by uh, the foreign producers' domestic competition. And in fact, those are the guys who got to write our unfair trade laws, and those are the guys that you might uh, imagine uh, have a, a rather strong commercial interest in ensuring that we as consumers buy from them and not from their foreign competition. Hmm. Uh, there's been about th three like main conversations, I feel like, going around this topic. I want to ask you about each of them. The first one, though, I think has been the least covered, which is are these let's just say the argument for protectionism works let's just say it's a good idea for a moment yeah. are the circumstances with the steel industry in particular <laughs> even there to to justify it if it did work yeah it, it certainly doesn't appear so um so if you look at steel production over the last uh actually several decades it's pretty steady um there was of course a huge drop in the great recession but over the last um almost 10 years uh steel output's been about 90 million tons um you uh you also look at imports and imports are still only about 25 to 27 percent of the market so the u.s industry still has over 70 percent of the domestic market share um you look at the company's profits they're actually making hundreds of millions of dollars in profits right now um and then of course you look at uh, you know, uh, the, the national security arguments here, which are, are what are being debated right now. Mm -hmm. And you look at most of our imports actually come from our closest allies, uh, like Canada, for example, or Europe or Japan. Uh, these, are, these are countries with which we have, we have security treaties. I mean, Canada, for heaven's sakes, is part of the American national defense industrial base <laughs> defined by law. So, so, <laughs> uh, so hang on just for a second, though. Wow. There, yeah. if, if, if we play this out, I mean, I... I you know, looking at World War II, we had the resources, we had the factories, and we could build these things. Right. If if we were down to 10% steel, we were only making 10% of our own steel, you could make the case that yeah. a country to be strong has got to have these plants. But that's not the case in this. 
Yeah, definitely. So, in fact, Secretary, Secretary Mattis himself wrote a letter to the Department of Commerce as was required under the statute we're, we're dealing with right now. And he noted that only 3% of current Department of Defense needs um, uh, are, uh, could be satisfied. So only 3% of total uh, domestic steel production could, be, could satisfy all of DOD's needs. So DOD only needs a tiny fraction of our actual U.S steel output. Same goes for aluminum. So the idea that the steel, uh, that we have this withering steel industry, then we can't build tanks and planes and the rest, just simply is nonsense, as, as Secretary uh, Mattis himself uh, made clear. All right, next question. Uh, pretty much every president uh, from both parties has always talked about uh, and, and uh, many times enacted uh, tariffs on particularly steel. We've done it a million times. What were the results when we've done it? Right. The results were not very good. Um, so in a paper I wrote for Cato last year, um, I actually documented uh, the long history of America's, American protectionist failures. And steel features prominently. And if you look at over the years, over and over and over again, steel protectionism imposed immense costs on American consumers. Uh, and not just uh, American families, but also a lot of American businesses and workers, you know, manufacturers that need steel, uh, construction uh, companies that, of course, need steel. So not only did it impose immense costs, hundreds of thousands of dollars per year for any steel job saved uh, or created, uh, but also didn't even uh, lead to the revitalization of the industry. So the industry uh, still suffered bankruptcies. The industry still came back for even more protection. And so over and over again, you see that, that it just simply didn't work. And in fact, you see in some cases, the industry uh, refusing to innovate, refusing to reinvest, uh, refusing to get lean and mean and competitive again, um, and, uh, and, and instead relying on government protection. It violates the Kondrakiev wave. <laughs> so, Scott, because one other part of this is you could argue that you can save a few steel jobs with a yep. big tariff, right? Sure. But the overall effect on employment yep. in America is actually negative with these things. Is that what you found? Exactly. So if you look, for example, at the, so of course, President Bush imposed steel safeguard tariffs back in 2001 and 2002. And uh, the net result was uh, a destruction of um, about 250,000 jobs, according to one report, 100,000 jobs in, in the other. I mean, the exact numbers don't matter. The fact is that you, you saw a, a net destruction of jobs overall. And that, that's just basic common sense, really, when, when, especially in, a, in something like steel that's such a critical raw material. Uh, steel workers in this country are uh, are outnumbered by steel consuming workers by something like 45 to 1. So mm. it's inevitable that if you tax the inputs of these 45 to save the one, you're going to end up with more losses. And that's, of course, what happens over and over. And that's leaving out the kind of eggheady econo economics on deadweight loss and the rest. I mean, just looking common sense at the common sense angle of it, you're going to end up with losses that far outweigh the gains. So um, let me ask you the third question, and that is trade wars are easy to win. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, yeah, the, the the sad thing about a trade war is that everyone loses. Um, you don't 
end a trade war um, emerging victorious. All you've really done is you end up, you're poorer. Um, in fact, trade wars are simply when both sides yell across the ocean and then turn inward and shoot their own citizens. Um, and that's really what happens over and over again. You know, as we tax uh, imports of whether it be steel or automobiles, we simply harm American consumers. Uh, and, you know, foreign exporters will, will get hurt too, but uh, you're, you're taking a lot of casualties for that. And then, of course, if a foreign uh, government retaliates, which many have promised to do in the case of the current steel and aluminum tariffs, then, of course, our exporters get hit, their consumers get hurt. And at the end of the day, everybody's just poorer and worse off. Um, and when the thing finally ends, uh, there, there is no, no real victor here. Scott, I want you to speak directly to the person who is, is not into global politics. They look at globalism and say, yeah, I want to be a part of the global community, but we're being ripped off and I'm struggling and I feel like our jobs are going overseas and nobody's protecting us. We can, we're playing fair. The other parts of the world are not. It's time somebody stands up for me. Right. So, you know, I think there are, there are a, lot of, a lot of responses there. I mean, the first, of course, is that, you know, I think, I think free traders generally need to be a bit more sympathetic to, to the concerns and fears of, you know, a lot of average Americans. Um, you know, we're dealing uh, right now in a very disruptive uh, economic period. It's not just globalization, though. In fact, um, the vast majority of job losses, particularly manufacturing, um, over the last few decades have come from automation yeah. uh, and technological change right. um, than, than from trade. Um, and, of course, there are changing consumer tastes uh, that just simply we, we, we prefer services more these days than we do to certain manufactured goods and so forth. And so, you know, there is a, a necessary amount of sympathy that goes to kind of being uh, in this very, very disruptive uh, period. Uh, but, yeah. but again, it's important to note that this isn't just uh, or even primarily a globalization thing. Um, the, the second thing to note is, though, that, that, that the, the parts of disruption that are trade-related are really just manifestations of kind of free market competition, which we, we kind of all under, inherently understand are really good, and not just good, but important for our economy. I mean, you know, the American economy is this kind of dynamic, churning uh, beast of sorts that if you start to slow that down, or if you start to prevent the adjustment that the economy kind of does naturally in a free market, if you start thwarting all of these great things that come from free market competition, um, we actually all will end up even, even worse off. And, you know, on trade, that's not just cheaper T-shirts. Uh, it's, it's jobs, in whether it be trucking or ports or in, again, import-consuming manufacturing, in services, you name it. And all of this is, is, is overall a good thing. Um, but look, that still doesn't help the guy whose job actually did um, uh, get, you know, outsourced or or mm -hmm. sent abroad. Mm -hmm. um, that is that's that's rough. But the the again, it's it's a part of this kind of greater uh, economic uh, sure. dynamism. And and the other point, you know, oftentimes. Um, 
unmentioned is that, you know, if you have jobs that were literally, um, that literally existed only because they were behind a tariff wall or because they were receiving a government subsidy, you know, you do, of course, have to ask the question about whether, <laughs> whether that job, whether that subsidy or that tariff really needs, should be staying in place in the first place. I mean, you know, you're, you again are kind of dealing with this redistribution idea. Should, should some of us be forced to subsidize others? Um, but, you know, look, finally, there is, an adjustment thing, you know, something that we talk about a lot is we really do need better policies in place when it comes to helping workers, helping individuals adjust. Um, you know, we, we, we just have not updated our policies to reflect how disruptive an era yes. we have right now. Yes. And, and that, again, is not just trade. In fact, it's, it's, it's far everything. more about all these other things yeah. that are going on, and uh, particularly information technology. We have, we, and, and to have policies that are from the 1950s and 60s uh, yeah. to help workers that are disrupted, displaced in, a, in 2018 really makes no sense. We, I think there yeah. really is a, a place for, for legitimate government action, or at least reform, our systems. You know, the thing, one of the things I love to talk about, the example I love to use, is that for a long time we had a tax credit for people who were training in their same job, but they couldn't get that exact same benefit for training for a new job. <laughs> that so, makes no sense in this sort of economy. Uh, quick, Scott, let's go. We have got yeah. about 30 seconds left, 40 seconds. One quick sure. question I have for you. I read the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, to say, the Congress shall have power to regulate commerce with foreign nations. Yet we were talking about this as if the Congress can't do anything to stop these tariffs. How is what's the process of this? Right. So because Congress has over the years delegated so much of its trade powers to the president, uh, you're you're really looking now uh, that the Congress would have to to act, would have to pass some sort of legislation, and I guess it would have to be veto-proof legislation. Now, that said, there's history for this. Under this very same law, Congress in 1980 actually did pass a uh, a law uh, against its own, a president of its own party. And, and then overrode the veto. So there is potential for action, and Congress does have the constitutional authority to do so. But more broadly, broadly we really need to have a talk about whether yeah. the trade powers delegated to the president still make sense uh, in today's economy, Scott but not only in today's economy, with today's president. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Adjunct scholar uh, at the Cato Institute and probably the leading authority on trade and why free trade is something we should all be a champion of. Glenn Beck, Mercury.